0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, I'm producer Jay and this is Darts and Letters. Today we're playing part two of Cited, America's Chernobyl. If you haven't already, go back and listen to yesterday's episode to catch part one. We are playing you our favorite episodes from our catalog until we relaunch Darts and Letters with a new season on September 18th. If you're enjoying listening to us on New Books Network, we'd appreciate it if you could go find Darts and Letters in your podcast app and hit that subscribe button. So here's the conclusion of yesterday's story, part two of Cited, America's Chernobyl.
2: When doctors don't know what's going on, they call it idiopathic. It means cause unknown. That's what I began to call my medical mystery tour.
1: I'm Gordon Caddick, and this is Cited. Last week,
0: the 400,000-acre government reservation of the Hanford Atomic Energy Plant
3: was created. Today, we are commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Manhattan Project.
4: Here at Nagasaki, the explosion was concentrated on an area of one square mile. and even more complete destruction is said to have resulted
5: We're basically guinea pigs for the atomic age. We're just the surviving guinea pigs.
6: And he said, oh yeah, back in the, you know, in the 60s I saw confidential memos about how you shouldn't eat whitefish from the Columbia River because they'd been eating radioactive moss out
5: of the effluent of one of the reactors. This lady had nine miscarriages. The husband and wife died of cancer.
6: They said, Well we'll keeping a death map.
5: July nineteen eighty five, that's the date I started asking questions. It
7: could either have a catastrophic accident, it could have a criticality where it would kill everyone in the plant, or it could have an explosion could result in, you know, a 700 mile long cloud.
6: The US military ordered a Hanford plant to deactivate the filters that kept radioactive iodine out of the air, allowing a huge radiation cloud to blanket our region.
7: It was out of control, beyond even when we first looked at it three months before. Plutonium
1: was stored in drums in the hallway. Even with your siblings uh, having cancers, your mother would say, forget about it.
5: Now it's, history, she uh... said.
1: If you haven't listened to that episode, stop now. Go back, listen to part one. This will make a lot more sense if you do. It's October 9th, 1986. Casey Roode is in Washington, D.C., 2,600 miles from home. Back in Washington State... His name is splashed across the front page of yesterday's Seattle Times. He's a nuclear safety auditor turned whistleblower, and he just publicly called out the Hanford nuclear site.
7: In a way, I felt like I was called to do this. And I'm not a religious person, so it wasn't based on anything like that. It was just my whole life had led to that place. In hindsight, at my age today, I, I, I don't... Had I never done anything like that, I don't know that I would have that to do that. But I was young enough and full of enough vim and vigor to say, this is the right thing to do, and I have to do it.
1: This morning, he's going to Capitol Hill to testify behind closed doors. He has all of his safety audits with him, reams of paperwork showing how unsafe some of the Hanford plants are. Missing plutonium, illegal toxic dumping, broken alarms, ignored safety protocols, and on top of all that, memos that prove that the contractor's running Hanford ignored his warnings. It's early in the morning and Casey is just returning from his run. He's calming his nerves. Suddenly, the hotel phone rings. It's the Seattle Times journalist that Casey's been working with.
7: The article just came out, it's a headline story, and they just shut all the plants down.
1: Before Casey gets the chance to testify, the Department of Energy closes down Hanford. Casey going public? It worked. Well, sort of. Hanford management claims that this has nothing to do with Casey's audits. Instead, this is just a temporary shutdown to fix a single safety issue. But for Casey, temporary isn't good enough. He doesn't trust the contractors to actually fix any of the issues of the plant. He'd heard this line before. So he shows up to Capitol Hill, safety audits in hand, and behind closed doors, Congress asks him about the security of the plutonium made at Hanford.
7: You know, if you, if you could show me your secret clearance, I could tell you about how I, I could steal a plutonium button out of the plant and sell it to uh, Saddam Hussein. And they were like, well, that's not possible. I said, well, yeah, if you got a minute, I'll explain it to you. I got all done. And they said, that's unbelievable. And I said, oh, well, that's just one way. I got another way, too.
1: Casey wasn't the first Hanford whistleblower, but he was the right guy at the right time. Opposition was mounting, and Casey was a guy on the inside with a paper trail. So, the government couldn't ignore him. Also, he testified six months after Chernobyl.
4: Moscow television tonight. An official announcement from the Council
6: of Ministers.
2: There has been an accident at the Chernobyl Atomic Power Station.
6: One
3: of the atomic reactors at the Chernobyl Atomic Power Plant in the city of Kiev was damaged. Perhaps the worst accident in the short history of the world's nuclear power industry. There's no way to say how much
0: lasting damage that cloud may have already caused.
7: Our end reactor was a, was a graphite reactor, very much similar to Chernobyl reactor. So there was a fear, a rising of fear level for sure over Chernobyl.
1: Chernobyl put nuclear issues front of mind for politicians. The disaster in the Ukraine made shutting down a major employer in Washington state politically possible. So the plant closes, at least for now.
7: This is like October of 1986. Okay, so then I come back and it's all in the newspapers. It's all everywhere. The plants are shut down and Tri-Cities hates me because I'm going to ruin 12,000 jobs and all that kind of stuff. So they're fighting to stay open or to get back open.
1: It actually employed over 15,000 people in 1987, but with some of the plants closing, that falls to 10,000. The Department of Energy hires a new contractor to oversee Hanford, and they promise, we can fix these safety issues and get the plants back up and running.
7: First thing they did is they laid me off, and they, they wanted nothing to do with me.
1: Then the town turns on him, just like they did with Tom Bailey. If you go against Hanford, You're not just seen as an enemy of the plants, you're seen as an enemy of the people. People snub Casey at Little League games. A church pastor tells their congregation to boycott Casey's side business, a yogurt shop. But for Casey, this goes beyond just suburban slights. The people who ran Hanford were after him. They tapped his phones. I even
7: have them on video out there with their little van. And my daughter accidentally videoed them. We lived on a cul-de-sac, and there they are, and she videotaped it. You see the guy in the back of the van. It's hilarious.
1: Other Hanford whistleblowers have said this, too. And a federal inquiry confirmed it. They found that Hanford contractors had illegally used wiretaps and surveillance against its own employees. All of this is happening as Congress gears up for more hearings. It was a big
7: mess for sure. Congress was really coming down on Reagan for his willingness to operate plants at such a at such a risk to the public.
1: Casey set to go back and testify again. But he says the folks at Hanford sent over somebody to convince him not to do it.
7: Young guy who was in charge of safety for the
1: Department of Energy at Hanford. Casey says they talked for a few hours over lunch. And then This guy asks him to go easy on the DOE. He says that Hanford's manager is thinking about running for president, and it wouldn't look good if Casey keeps criticizing the safety of the plants.
7: And he said, well, you know, here's the deal. We can give you a consultant job if this blows over, and we guarantee you at least a quarter of a million dollars a year. You'll have an office. You won't report to anybody. It'll be a sweet deal. It's going to work for you. I, mean, I promise
1: you we're going to fix the problems. But Casey's not after a sweetheart deal. He just wants somebody to fix the plants. And he doesn't believe that the DOE is actually going to do that.
7: There at the table, he said, Casey, you're making me be more frank. I just, I don't know how to tell you this, but, you know, we know, we know where your kids go to school. We know a lot about your family. And I, I, I can't assure the safety of them. I think something bad could happen to them if you keep this up. And I took that as a threat.
1: Casey's not intimidated. He testifies in front of Congress. In Hanford, it closes. It didn't go out with a bang, though. It was more like a whimper. Buildings closed one by one, Often management said that this was only temporary, you know, we're just going to fix things up. But the Cold War ends in 1991, and Hanford never does reboot its plutonium production. And quietly, it's just over. Casey won his fight against Hanford, and he also takes the contractors to court for harassment. That fight took about 15 years, but he won that too. Then he just stopped fighting
7: this constantly fighting thing is not my nature. It's just who I've become. And it doesn't feel right. Then I discovered, oh, my God, I am the world's renowned expert at finding your problems. And when I'm doing that, I'm not looking for mine. And then all of a sudden, there's a mirror. One decides it's time to hold the mirror up. And that's literally crushing. It was for me anyways. And so that's what pushed me more into a personal transformation thing, and I've been on that journey ever since.
1: Casey says he's working on his own problems now, not the nuclear industries. He started a brew pub with his son, got really into Native American flutes, and now he's writing a book. Casey's fight is over, but the Hanford story isn't. After almost five decades of making plutonium, Hanford is the most toxic place in the Western Hemisphere. So, the cleanup begins. In 1989, the federal government designates Hanford as a Superfund cleanup site.
0: I'm Kenneth Lucas, a project manager for EPA's Superfund program. Years ago, people didn't understand how certain chemical wastes would affect people's health and the environment. Many wastes were dumped on the ground, into rivers, or left out in the open. As a result, thousands of abandoned hazardous waste sites were created. If there's a Superfund site in your neighborhood, you're probably wondering what will happen. How will it be cleaned
1: up? Designating something a Superfund site brings in federal money. In this case, the EPA, the DOE, and the state of Washington are all involved. They have to clean up over 50 million gallons of radioactive waste and heavy metals. Most of that is in the form of sludge stored in 177 underground tanks, many of which are known to be leaking.
0: Everyone wants a clean environment a safe place to work and to raise our families. EPA understands this, and through the Superfund program, we're working to clean up hazardous waste sites and to make the environment safe, now and in the future.
1: Cheesy, inspiring EPA music aside, this cleanup isn't going well. It's the most costly in U.S. history, and there have been major leaks, accidents, worker lawsuits, cost overruns, delays, even corporate kickback schemes. But it's a cash cow, and it could cost up to $700 billion. Current estimates say that the cleanup will be done sometime between the year 2066 and the year 2102. Hanford is still the lifeblood of Richland. The cleanup now employs over 9,000 people, almost as much as the plutonium production did. So Hanford is the place that keeps on keeping on, even after the plant shut down. Cleaning up Hanford's toxic waste is one thing, but what about its toxic legacy? The people who live downwind from the plant, would they get justice? That's after the break. You're listening to Darts and Letters. If you like what you hear and you want to support us, why don't you subscribe? You can do that wherever you find your podcasts, or you can find us at dartsandletters.ca. Okay, back to the show. Welcome back to Cited. I'm Gordon Kadik. Hanford is closed, the cleanup has begun, but there's still the downwinders, those people living in the shadow of Hanford. They're sick. What will the government do to fix that? And it wasn't just Tom Bailey, the farmer you heard in the last episode. There are thousands of downwinders. Some of them live in completely different states. Patricia Hoover is one of them.
2: I was 11 years old and I was very active in school and in sports. I was just a real active kid and I I just got sick and ran out of gas.
1: Pat grew up in eastern Oregon. When she was little, her family moved to Hermiston, a town about 40 miles south of Richland. At first, she had a normal childhood. But then...
2: My grades were going down, and I was taken to the doctor. And my thyroid gland had totally stopped working. It had just shut down.
1: The thyroid regulates a lot. Mood, energy, weight. And with her thyroid shutting down, Pat was just too sick to play outside, too tired, too depressed. So she pings from doctor to doctor, and everyone seems baffled.
2: When doctors don't know what's going on, they call it idiopathic. It means cause unknown. And that's what was in my chart, medical charts for my whole childhood. Idiopathic this, idiopathic that. Cause unknown, they didn't know. That's what I began to call my medical mystery tour.
1: None of this makes sense to her. Why is she having thyroid issues? And it isn't just her.
2: Every single person in my family had thyroid disease, and all were on thyroid hormone replacement. And we had no family history of thyroid disease of any kind in my mom or dad's side of the family.
1: In her 20s, Pat develops this tumor in her neck that's as big as a grapefruit. It hurt to swallow, even to wear turtlenecks. She went to one doctor who thought it was a goiter.
2: And she says, oh, you must have grown up in the Midwest where they didn't have iodized salt.
1: Iodized salt prevents goiters. They didn't use it in the Midwest, but they did in Oregon.
2: And I was like, I'm look at my history. I was born, I'm a native Oregonian. I was born in the Dalles. I'd lived in Oregon my whole life. No, I'm not from the Midwest. And I mean, that was, I think that was the doctor that finally said, well, I have someone here in Portland I'd like you to see and gave us a name like Dr. John Wilson or something. And we'd look it up and he's a psychiatrist. And at that point, having seen so many doctors and given so many histories and have them all say, we don't know what's going on, um, then in my own head, I thought, well, maybe I do need to talk to a mental health provider.
1: Pat was someone who read the news. She was actually a radio broadcaster. But after she moved from the desert to the coast, She didn't hear much about Hanford.
2: News from the east side of Oregon and Washington doesn't go over the Cascade Mountains for some reason.
1: All of Karen Dorn Steele's reporting, her stories about Tom and the Downwinders, her stories about the Green Run. Remember, that's the 1949 experiment that polluted the area. Well, Pat missed these stories. In 1990, she was still all alone on her medical mystery tour.
2: I'd been sick for nine months and gradually going downhill, downhill. Same thing, being treated literally all over the country. You know, infectious disease people, the University of Washington Med School, a veterinarian in Long Beach. I mean, I have the Mayo Clinic in Rochester.
1: Pat was finally home after being hospitalized, still with no diagnosis. I was unable to
2: read, to hold a magazine, to hold a newspaper. And my husband said, oh, there's a show on PBS.
7: Tonight on NOVA.
2: And it's about Hanford. And that's the first time I ever knew that Hanford had exposed all those people with their emissions. I was 43 years
1: old. After 43 years, her medical mystery is solved. She starts wondering if anyone else is out there. And then she finds out about the downwinders.
2: All those activist groups on the east side of Washington and Oregon had really, really been doing terrific work, forced, using the Freedom of Information Act to force the release of the documents. So that everybody was on board except Pat Hoover, who shows up, you know, in 1990, wanting to know more. (laughs) I wasn't the only one on a medical mystery tour.
1: Pat and the downwinders start looking for recognition, a government apology, and for restitution. They think the government should pay their medical bills. For many of the downwinders, these are big bills. Like with Pat, traveling around the country to see specialists, and eventually she had to have her thyroid removed. But here's the problem. There's no proof that Hanford is responsible. This might not make sense to you. After listening to this first part of our story, you know Hanford did contaminate this area. But were there actually elevated cancer rates? And could you directly link the contamination to those particular health issues? Strangely, no. You'd need research for that. So that was the first step for Pat and the Downwinders. Prove it.
2: And I just started digging and looking for information on radiation health effects. You have to remember this is 1990, so I am in oak boxes with index cards, literally digging for information and not finding much at all, which in itself was an answer. It was an answer. This was a secret project and it really got kept secret. (laughs)
1: There was some research on radiation health effects, like around Nagasaki and Hiroshima, on the Marshall Islands, and there was a test bomb in Utah. But in the US, nobody had ever studied what happens if you live downwind from a leaky plutonium production plant. In 1990, the energy secretary acknowledged the people here were exposed to high doses of emissions. But he said, quote, we don't know who was at the right spot at the wrong time. This, in and of itself, is an interesting story. Historian Kate Brown says that, really throughout Hanford's history, the scientists just didn't want to study the area because that would create a paper trail. Better to just not do the research. But now with Hanford closed and all this public pressure, Congress has to act. It calls for two studies, one to figure out how much radiation the downwinders had been exposed to, and another to figure out how that radiation might have affected their thyroids. The government starts having these community meetings. It's a chance for them to explain their plans. And it's a chance for the downwinders to talk directly to a committee that would advise the studies.
2: You're out in these rural areas of eastern Washington or eastern Oregon. They'd be in some gymnasium and they'd set the feds up on the stage with their suits and ties and their they would be above the crowd and um you know here we've got farmer joe who just got off his combine cutting wheat in the wheat harvest and he's dirty and he's sitting out in the audience and there it was intimidating for a lot of people
1: but pat isn't intimidated she speaks up
2: i just said that i'd had a lot of medical issues throughout my life and that um, there needed to be assistance for the people that were damaged from all the emissions from Hanford.
1: But Pat says that she's not impressed by what comes out of these government meetings.
2: It was a way to placate the people. The documents came out. It was clear that we had been damaged. And now the government was scurrying around trying to show that they cared and they were going to come and talk to the people and let them say what they wanted in front of government agencies. And it was a PR campaign.
1: You'll remember, the government has just started to fund two big studies on what Hanford did to the downwinders. But Pat says, we shouldn't trust this government research. And she knows it goes both ways. The government isn't going to trust them, these uneducated farmers and amateur epidemiologists. Even if they're right, they don't have the expert credentials. That's when Pat finds PSR.
2: Physicians for Social Responsibility, it's an international organization, but they had an Oregon chapter in Portland.
1: It was a group of doctors and scientists who were against nuclear arms. She drives to their office and someone says, I know who you need to talk to. Rudy Nussbaum. He's a physicist, just retired from Portland State University. and He knows a thing or two about radiation. So this person at the PSR office picks up a phone, dials Rudy's number, and hands the receiver to Pat. And this guy gets on the
2: phone with this strong German accent, and I introduced myself. I said, I just found out that I am a Hanford downwinder. I was exposed to radiation for my entire childhood, living on the east side of Oregon. At the end of our conversation, he said, You are part of America's nuclear holocaust. Well, Rudy and his wife are holocaust survivors.
1: Pat and Rudy decide to meet, along with other downwinders and doctors from PSR. The first thing the downwinders want, it's just a letter. Something they can bring to their own doctors that validates them. Something from PSR that says, hey, I'm a doctor, and Pat has radiation exposure. That's what's causing this. It isn't all in her head. They decide that everyone should meet in Hood River, Oregon. People drive for hours. I mean, we're talking
2: the whole east of the Cascades for Oregon, North Oregon, and all of Washington, and parts of Idaho up to the Bitterroots. You know, it's a huge geographic area.
1: 30 people made it.
2: And sat in this circle, in this room... And just went around the room.
1: At this point, you might already know what people are going to say. The stories are familiar.
2: Thyroid disorders, stillbirths, um, birth defects, um, miscarriages, all kinds of birth anomalies. And um, they were, I'm sorry, but it just makes me very emotional. They were so respectful of the Downwinders. I mean, from day one, they believed us. They didn't poo-poo us. They didn't tell us that we were crazy, that we needed all to go see psychiatrists. And so it was so refreshing to have a team of doctors and scientists saying, okay, you guys, help us. We want to help you.
1: They form a coalition, the Northwest Radiation Health Alliance.
2: We just called ourselves the Alliance.
1: Rudy and the other doctors say, look, we could write you a doctor's note, but We could do way better than that.
2: We could do some kind of a survey of people's health.
1: What are the cancer rates of the downwinders? Plus, if the Alliance can demonstrate a strong enough correlation between those cancer rates and the Hanford exposure levels, then you'd have to figure the plants are responsible. So the Alliance starts their research project. But this is not your typical research project. It's not a big grant-funded study coming out of some university lab. It's a ragtag coalition—farmers and townspeople, social justice activists, doctors, and academics. The traditional experts, the doctors, they know how to run a survey, analyze data, and present it to an academic audience. But what do you ask people? Who do you ask? And how do you ask it? That's where Pat and the Downwinders come in. They bring their own expertise, their knowledge of the environment and its history, and they come up with the right survey questions.
2: Where did you grow up? Did you eat vegetables that you grew in your own garden? Did you drink local milk? Did you eat wild game? Did you fish in the river? You know, things that we figured we needed to know about uh, that would point to their exposure.
1: Pat and the other volunteers gather in living rooms, sometimes at Rudy's kitchen table. They draft surveys, they have the doctors look over it, they put together mailing lists, Pat says they spend a small fortune on postage, photocopies, and long-distance phone bills.
2: We sent out 1,600 questionnaires, and we got back 801. We had shoeboxes full of these surveys. And, just a sec, I got a piece of paper here. Oh, okay, so I have survey results. So, um, of the 801 responses, 222 of those were hypothyroid. That was the most common.
1: Hypothyroidism means you have an underactive thyroid. So it's not producing the hormones you need, hormones that regulate metabolism, ovulation, heart rate, body temperature.
2: And then all all types of thyroid conditions came up for us. And uh, lots of cancers. This is is shocking. These are uh, incredible numbers.
1: They found higher incidences of cancers in downwinders compared to the average population. And not just thyroid cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, central nervous system tumors. They also found higher rates of miscarriages.
2: So we, we spent $1,800 in this six-year project and ended up with seven peer-reviewed scientific articles in the medical scientific literature, which is pretty amazing.
1: Within academia, this is pretty extraordinary, not just for how productive it is, but how it did what it did. It's what you'd call a community-engaged participatory research project. This is a kind of academic buzz term. Basically, it means involving the community in the study design.
2: Community-based participatory survey work has got to bridge the gap between scientific and lay um, investigations. You know, we just have to get the people that really experienced the um, exposures or toxicity or whatever, they need to be part of the conversation. And I think that happened through the Alliance.
1: But this is still rare and pretty new. The Alliance was creating a model for how to study the health effects of radiation, a model that has since been emulated in other places. So now the Downwinders have their research. Peer-reviewed articles, not childhood stories. To them, this is as close to proof as they're going to get. A strong correlation between Hanford exposures and their health issues. The next step after proof is justice. They want recognition from the government, and they want the government to foot their health care bills. In 1990, the lawsuit started, and Pat Hoover wasn't the only one. There were suits from local indigenous groups who fished in the Columbia, There were Oregonians who wanted the government to pay for their continued medical testing, and the downwinders. There were as many as 5,000 of them. It eventually became a big class action lawsuit.
2: Of course, the government came right in and poo-pooed all that and said, no, you know, we're gonna prove it. And nothing happened with the Hanford emission.
1: A quick technical side note here. The suit wasn't actually against the feds. It was against the contractors who ran Hanford. But because those contractors ran Hanford on behalf of the feds, the government defended them. With the government on their side, these contractors basically had unlimited money. Plus, the government was funding its own studies. The first one is called the Hanford Environmental Dose Reconstruction Project, or HEDR. It was funded by the DOE and run by a lab at Hanford. To avoid a conflict of interest, it's eventually transferred to the Center for Disease Control. It asks people where they lived and what they ate. It asks them if they grew their own food, if they drank their cow's milk. It's trying to figure out how much radiation exposure the downwinders had. The exposure estimates from HEDR, the first study, are then going to be used in the next government-funded study. This one also from the Center for Disease Control. It's called the Hanford Thyroid Disease Study. This one will compare exposure levels to thyroid issues and see if there's a strong correlation. So you've got your two studies, one that looks at exposure rates and the other that tries to correlate those exposure rates with thyroid issues. When that second study is done, the downwinders learn about the results, not from the government, but from the New York Times. The headline read, no radiation effect found at Northwest nuclear site. Well,
6: they did find a slightly elevated levels of thyroid abnormalities and uh, an unexplained 20% higher than normal infant death rate in the early years.
1: Again, this is journalist Karen Dorn Steele. She wrote those stories that you heard about on the first episode, like the story about the Green Run, that botched government experiment that irradiated the region. Karen also followed the government studies closely. The studies found no conclusive evidence of a direct link between the exposures and the health effects. According to the studies, Hanford's not to blame. It's possible, but not probable.
6: This inconclusive result of the thyroid study really um, angered the downwinders. We who, who, who asked the question, well, you found a dose cancer correlation in the Marshall Islands. You found one in Chernobyl. And you found one in the Utah uh, after the bomb test. So why not why not Hanford?
1: The National Academies of Sciences did an independent review of the studies. They took some issue with how the results were presented, but overall, they said it was sound. The Alliance couldn't believe it. This ran totally against their own research. So in 1999, Pat and the Alliance call their own press conference.
2: This this. Collaboration has bridged the gap between scientific and lay approaches to environmental health.
1: That's Pat. She's wearing all white, and she has heaps of notes from yellow legal pads.
2: Our health survey has worked. We found elevated numbers of disease and health problems from this toxic poisoning. And we have the scientists and doctors to tell you about that today.
1: The Alliance scientists admit that there were issues with their work. Everyone in the survey identified as a downwinder, so maybe it's giving you a bit of a skewed picture. They didn't have enough money to run a control group, but the government studies, the Alliance scientists say, it doesn't measure up.
4: As a scientist, I will say that the thyroid, the Hutchinson the thyroid study, is very poor science.
1: This is Rudy Newsbaum. He's that first doctor that Pat talked to on the phone, the doctor who believed her. He has white hair and a widow's peak, and he's the only scientist at the table who isn't wearing a tie.
4: As a scientist, you go out and look at phenomena as broadly as you can possibly do. And you don't go in there with preconceived idea to prove this or that. You go in there to see what there is. Rudy
1: thinks that the government was just doing this research to defend itself, and he says that they don't actually have an answer to the Alliance's research. In the Alliance's sample, they found over 200 people with hypothyroidism. Sure, there's a selection bias, but they found so much more than they expected. In a typical group this size, the Alliance expected to see about six people. What accounts for this discrepancy? Do you think that iodine-131 might have something to do with it?
4: Now what a true scientist would do before he goes to the New York Times is to sit down and do a long and hard amount of thinking to see, hey, there must be something wrong. You go through the medical literature and the, and the epidemiological literature, there's no doubt that iodine-131 produces health effects.
1: There are lots of methodological concerns about the government-backed studies, about what they did and did not take into account, about the dose estimates that they use as their baseline, about how air currents and topography weren't figured into their calculations. It's complicated and messy. But according to Pat, there's a deeper issue than epidemiological methodology.
2: The DOE was in charge. Well, the DOE is the entity that poisoned us in the first place. I knew the government wouldn't admit to having harmed all these people. I mean, they they just wouldn't.
1: And Karen discovered the government wasn't exactly a disinterested granting agency funding independent experts.
6: The Energy Department and also the main Justice Department, very concerned about not setting precedents for uh, for compensating civilians uh, at all their, their nuclear weapons plants nationwide. They soon began to treat Hedder as what they called litigation defense.
1: She found records that showed the lawyers actually sat down with the scientists to discuss their methodologies.
6: And when I wrote that story, the um, the lead lawyer for the Hanford um, uh, trial, the defense lawyer for the contractors, just furious. He asked for a change of venue for the trial because of the story, because they considered it extremely damaging to their case. The judge turned him down. But that was a huge revelation that actually... This wasn't so independent after all, and that lawyers were helping guide the work of Hedder.
1: The lawyers eventually cite the government thyroid study to argue that there is no evidence of a direct link between Hanford and these health issues. And they fight the downwinders on this for years.
6: I've covered a lot of trials, both uh, you know involving the government and private people. And usually there is, there's a finite amount of money that both sides can spend on a case. And in this case, I think a huge factor was the government lawyers had infinite uh, money from the U.S. Treasury. So everything was appealed. The um, defendant contractors for the government appealed every ruling in favor of the plaintiffs. One of the uh, plaintiffs' attorneys, he called it a a scorched earth defense. And I I think it was. Unlimited money, unlimited time. And meanwhile, the downwinders were dying.
1: The research and the scorched earth legal defense works. Out of thousands of people in these class action lawsuits, only two ever came to settlement. Many died before it went to court in 2005. Pat does get a teeny offer, $6,100. She refuses on principle. The last case ended in 2015, 25 years after they first sued. At the beginning of all of this, Tom Bailey was dismissed. He's just an uneducated farmer telling wild tales. Stories aren't enough. Karen Dorn Steele came in and she added journalism. She found the smoking gun, documents that showed how Hanford poisoned the region. But there was no direct link between that poison and the downwinders, so journalism wasn't enough. Pat Hoover came in with peer-reviewed research but that didn't seem to make much of a difference either. No matter what data they presented, it wasn't really in anyone's interest to listen to the downwinders. So, they never got what they really wanted. No recognition, no apology, no restitution. Hanford's toxic legacy? that swept under the rug. Mostly erased, mostly forgotten. After this long journey into the history of Hanford, I had to see it myself. And you can too, because it's now a national park. I enter a little office in what looks like a tiny strip mall in the outskirts of town.
4: Okay, welcome
3: everyone. Really nice to have you here this morning. Uh, you know you were going on the B Reactor Tour this morning, right? You're not here for the I'm
1: greeted by a tour guide wearing a baseball cap and blue shorts. He looks a little bit like a mailman.
3: My name is Bert Speer. I am a retired Hanford employee, worked out here for 36 years. Been retired a bit over four years.
1: I have to sign a waiver. This is pretty unique for a national park. It's still run by the Department of Energy. And even though the B reactor is decommissioned, it's still a nuclear reactor.
3: Sorry about that folks but like I said we do have to read this to you simply because visitors personal items as well as the tour bus are subject to search at any time during the tour because we're going to a a government restricted area and uh, you can only get out there with me I'm your escort today Mm -hmm. so uh, here we go personal items are subject to inspection to ensure a compliant dangerous weapons which include Blades longer than four inches, spring blade, and any other knife a blade that opens falls or is ejected into position by the force of gravity.
1: Before we actually go out to the plant, we gather in this small room. There are about 30 of us here. Almost everyone is older. One woman has a camera that hangs down from her neck like one of those comic book tourists. She also has a bunch of those National Park Service pins. Yes, Hanford has become a tourist location. Bert turns down the lights and starts an informational video.
3: Already? Well, this fires off a video real quick then. Hopefully, I won't have to call my wife to come in and make this work. Mm -hmm. YouTube.
1: This is the official history, the one that we began last episode with.
0: December 1942, a small plane flew low over the desert landscape of eastern Washington State. The man sitting next to the pilot thought to himself, this could be it. The man was Army Colonel Franklin Mathias. The vast expanse below him would eventually become the site of the world's first plutonium production reactor. The
1: video doesn't talk about the tens of thousands of lives lost at Nagasaki. It talks about the bomb for, well, just a few seconds, really.
0: And in the bomb dropped on Nagasaki, Japan, on August 9th, 1945. Five days later, Japan surrendered, and World War II was over.
1: It doesn't talk about the downwinders, either. This video is all about celebrating the enormous technical achievement that is the B Reactor.
0: The legacy of B Reactor will live on in time. Its contributions to science and engineering, nuclear industries, health physics, and many other areas make it one of the marvels of the 20th century and a testament to the American spirit.
3: One of the very first major understatements you're going to find in this program today, a real testament to the human spirit.
1: We drive about 40 minutes into the desert, towards the B Reactor. I see barbed wire fence everywhere.
3: What does it say on it? It has, says a whole bunch of stuff. You will be prosecuted to the furthest extent of the law if you cross this fence, and that sort of thing. Security is not, of course, what it used to be here when we were in the plutonium production business, but we still, it is still a secure site. So, yeah, it uh, we have every night and then somebody Who wants to come in and say what a horrible place this is? uh, That's how they make a statement, as they cross the fence. One thing I'll mention now, this is a really good time for this. As long as Rick and I are wearing our blue shirts, we do not have opinions about anything. We will state vetted, proven facts. Because of course, like everyone, we have lots of opinions. Some right, some wrong, some kind of so-so. So yeah, don't ask our opinions. As we pull in, again, the bathroom will be on the left-hand side of the bus. I do recommend you visit it, even if you don't need to. We call it a royal flush for a reason. But what we'd like to do is give... We arrive
1: at the B reactor, and there's not much to say. It really just looks like an old concrete industrial building. If I didn't know that they made plutonium here, I might have thought they made auto parts. I walk through a green hallway with historical posters on the wall. And then we get to the main event, The heart of the reactor, the pile. Do you remember those pin screen toys? You know exactly what I mean, even if you don't remember the name. It's that small black square with the hundreds of steel pins. You'd press your hand against the pins, and on the other side, it would leave an imprint. That's what this looks like. A wall of hundreds of pins. These are actually aluminum processing tubes. There's 2,004 of them. The tubes are used to separate plutonium from uranium. We wander off from the pile and we go into a control room. Burt begins another lecture.
3: Okay, recap. The pallet gauges were the water pressure gauges where the inlet water pressure was measured. There's 2,004 process tubes, so how many pressure gauges do we have? 2,004. 2004. This is a water pressure gauge. Simple Honestly,
1: style. this is interminably boring, so anticlimactic. I've traveled really far to see this place, the heart of the story. Now I'm here and I just zone out.
3: When Enrico Fermi had his very first reactor, the Chicago Pile 1, he had a boron tip control rod hanging over At top. At
1: first, I blame myself. Why can't you focus? This is an important thing to understand. How is plutonium made? But eventually, I stop blaming myself and I just get mad. There is something perverse about what's going on here. It's the contrast between the world historic nature of the place and the banal technical lecture I'm being given.
3: This was the PFP step, the plutonium finishing plan, because when material left here, it leaves in a semi-liquid slurry. It has to be finished before you can do anything with it. So as of 1949 later, we finished it here. Bert is
1: taking great pains to seem apolitical. There doesn't seem to be much of a message beyond, well, science and engineering are cool. Sure. But I think this place is where an unspeakable crime happened. You know, the bomb. A brutal crime against the Japanese people, and really against humanity. It ushered in the nuclear age, and several times we had a bunch of nuclear near misses. What happened here, it's really no exaggeration to say, it almost wiped out our civilization. And it still might. Even today, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists says that nuclear weapons are one of the major existential threats facing humanity. The famous doomsday clock is just 100 seconds to midnight, the closest that it's ever been. To me, this building is a moral blight. It's a mistake. It's a crime. It's not just a technical achievement, even if it is technically impressive. But that's just my opinion. You might love what they did here. But even for you, you might then expect some triumphalism, or at least some delicate moral accounting. Nope, mostly technical details. We walk into the pump room. We're on a steel catwalk, and there are a series of large tubes below us. ...to
3: clean the water, because I was telling some people that pure water doesn't pick up radioactivity. The sediments or things in the water. water was
1: pumped in here from the Columbia to cool down the reactors and then it was sent right back i think about the white fish exposed to toxic effluent i think about the indigenous people who use the river around hanford and have higher risks of cancer and immune diseases i think about tom's boy scout troop getting sick but i didn't hear any of that river is
3: a very clean river and huge a large amount of water and even though these reactors used a tremendous amount of water, it was still a small fraction, like 10% of the total flow. So if any did, radioactivity did get back to the river. It diluted out right away within probably literally a couple of feet or something like that, if not the first
1: that time. That downwinder history is erased. But most of this lecture, it's not even about that. It's about how the pumps work. It feels like I'm just getting an expert telling me how nuclear technology works. And that's sort of apolitical. Like Bert says, I don't get into my own opinions. But if you listen to of this season, you know that expertise is inherently political. It's about choices. What do we do? What do we fund? Who gets to decide? What do we remember? And where do our experts end up? Unfortunately, they too often end up in places like this, They put their moral and political blinders on, and they just do their job. The B reactor tour normalizes what happened here. It makes it boring, ordinary, nothing to get worked up about, just another science class that you can zone out of. This is the most toxic place in the Western Hemisphere, because of Hanford. But in Richland, the town that was built to support these plants You wouldn't notice that. In fact, you wouldn't even notice Hanford at all. It's like this nondescript industrial park out in the desert. You have places like this in your town. Places you don't go to. Places you don't see. But in Richland, what you do see is all the nuclear nostalgia around town. Here, Hanford is still celebrated.
2: I think it's outrageous that Richland still has you know the mascot is the bombers and the mushroom cloud is their logo and they have atomic lanes and you know uh plutonium porter beer in their taverns and i mean i i it's it's to me it's it, it's tragic that that those people out there have to turn that around in their own minds and celebrate it because they're in it and living it, and they have to justify what they're doing. I mean, you you can't be a scientist and go work at the plant and make your home in Richland and then know that you've been part of something that was that devastating, or drive yourself nuts.
1: I'm back again in Tom Bailey's neighborhood, the place with all the cancers. This is where our journey began. And as I drop Tom off at his house and say goodbye, I ask him about how Hanford is commemorated and the fact that Richland is celebrating its 75th anniversary.
5: They're telling a fairy tale. They talk about uh, how wonderful it is, but they don't want to talk about the environmental costs and the uh, human toll. The whole Hanford history is based on propaganda, feel-good propaganda. We did this. We accomplished that. We're the safest place on the planet. Nobody got sick. It's all a lie. Here you go, right here. This is the turnoff. That's good enough right here. What other questions you got?
1: Oh, I think those are kind of the main ones. Yeah, I guess I guess just the other, the only thing is is how does um, how does all the like, raw raw kind of, fairy tale stuff make you feel? You know the the history that they're telling now.
5: It pisses me off makes me angry. I still have anger. I forgive him, but I'm still angry. I'm still pissed off. All right. I'm water under the bridge, kid. <laughs> uh, really?
1: Don't say that, you're still fighting. Okay. This episode was produced by me, Gordon Kadic, and Paulie Legere with editing help from AC Rowe. Nicole Yakashira was our research assistant, and Aurora Tejeda was our fact checker. Our theme song and original music by our composer, Mike Barber. Dakota Koop is our graphic designer. It's production manager is David Tobias, and Sighted's executive producers are Gordon Kadic and Sam Fenn. Thanks to historian Sarah Fox for helping us understand this story. And also Kate Brown, author of Plutopia, nuclear families, atomic cities, and the great Soviet and American plutonium disasters. Check it out. And also check out Michael D'Antonio's Atomic Harvest, Hanford and the Lethal Toll of America's Nuclear Arsenal. Both these books were indispensable to us and they really helped us tell this story. Also, if you want to learn more about the downwinders lawsuits against Hanford, there's another book I'd recommend, The Hanford Plaintiffs, Voices from the Fight for Atomic Justice, that's from Tricia T. Pritikin with a forward from Karen Dorn Steele. You can find links to those and other things at citedpodcast.com. We'd also like to thank the many people we talked to along the way, including historians Linda M. Richards and Robert Franklin, as well as Tricia Pritikin, Tom Carpenter, John Fox, and Maynard Plahuta. Thanks also to Karen Richards, who helped us out with a tape sync. This episode was funded in part by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, it's part of a larger project on the politics of historical commemoration. Professor Eagle Glassheim at the University of British Columbia is the academic lead on that project. Cited is produced out of the Centre for Ethics at the University of Toronto, which is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Cited is also produced out of the Michael Smith Laboratories at the University of British Columbia. That's on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Soiletooth nations.